Hi, everyone, and welcome to State of the Revolution, the Michigan Progressive Podcast. I'm Leon O'Shea. This is a standalone interview I did with Dr. Abdul El-Sayed back on August 31st. Our apologies for not getting it up sooner. We had some technical difficulties. Anyway, enjoy the uh, discussion. It's pretty good. Hi, Abdul. Great to have you here. Thanks for coming on State of the Revolution. So I'm going to start out asking you a couple of questions about the pandemic intermingled with politics. But um, so let's start out with um, right now, the GOP in Michigan is trying to uh, change the state's health code in various ways. And uh, I'd like, you know, could you explain some of what they're trying to change and what the consequences, particularly what are the consequences of them making the kinds of changes that they're pushing for? Well, I think a lot of us have learned in the context of this pandemic that public health protects us in ways that we don't always see. And the bulwark of that is the legal protection offered to public health professionals via the public health code, which allows public health to sidestep a lot of the momentary politics of the moment, which unfortunately, the GOP's actions right now demonstrate precisely why that remains important. And the public health code is is pretty broad and sweeping, and it offers powers to, to public health officials to act in the name of the public health modes of crisis, which, you know, are a pandemic. And what we're seeing right now is a pushback in a very political sense from the GOP, who in a lot of ways has made their talking point and their position on this pandemic that it's not real, you know, and they'll give in to some aspects of the reality of it. But, um, Really, if you think about it, the single most important unifying perspective from the GOP from the very beginning is that it's not real. They've talked it down. They've undermined any aspect to respond to it, whether that was uh, in the very beginning, the responsibility and need for testing to contact tracing to lockdowns uh, early on in the pandemic and out of vaccinations. And this is just another step in that direction. That is, their thought is let us undermine the powers that exist in Michigan state law to protect the public's health because we don't like what people did to counteract a pandemic that we have persisted to say is unreal. But in fact, 615, 30,000 people now uh, have died of and millions of people have suffered. And you know, unfortunately, this is in keeping with a system of politics that have they perpetuated over the past five years since the Trump era began, where, you know, anything that dear leader says is taken as truth and, and anything that dear leader opposes uh, is taken as falsehood. And um, unfortunately, that's just not the way science works. It's not the way society ought to work. And it's why uh, this is so dangerous, because you follow this forward and you see a world where all power is concentrated in a few officials who, you know, unfortunately, the, the, the GOP is moving in a direction where they don't even have to be elected. And, you know, we're seeing how that's undermined our public health response to this pandemic from the get and um, and continues to undermine our pandemic, our response. Sure. sure. Do you know anything specific about what they're trying to do in Michigan and what specific consequences that would have? Yeah, they're trying to strip out some of the powers that local health officials would have, and they're trying to put shorter calipers on the time that a public health order can stand. Um, And that has really important implications because it doesn't delimit the time of emergency to what a public health trained individual would call an emergency. Instead, it puts more of that power to our state legislature. And we've seen what the damage of that can be in the course of this pandemic response itself. Right. I mean, like, for example, I think Florida right now is something like 200 people dying a day, you know, with the DeSantis out there saying, well, it's not real. And, you know, you don't have to do this, et cetera, et cetera. And as this continues, it seems to me that, that we, we see the same problem at many, in many different places with the GOP response to a lot of things, which is that they never want to look at the context. They never want to look at the big picture of what's going on everywhere. They want to focus on one particular thing about it. 
uh, or a different particular thing about it and not drawing any of the connections. So for example, you know, they'll hold up a snowball in Congress and say, hey, what are you talking about global warming? Um, you know, again, not understanding the difference between specific and for example, anecdotal evidence or, or, or individual pieces of data and massive data that actually demonstrates patterns over large areas of, of population, of time, of distance, et cetera. So I, I think that that's really concerning that they have that kind of way of, of handling their politics. But uh, I want to ask you, you know, as they're doing that with the pandemic and with lots of other things, how concerned are you that COVID is going to become endemic? For example, I've heard that now there's many animals, deer in Michigan, for example, have been shown to have coronavirus. And it's my understanding that that's one of the signs, that's one of the indicators that something is going to become endemic. What's your concerns there? What, what do you think about that possibility? You know, unfortunately, we are in a situation where it's highly likely that that SARS-CoV-2 is going to become endemic in the population. And to put that in perspective, just to explain what that means, it's going to be very similar to what we've experienced with the flu. A lot of folks don't realize this, but the flu that we continuously suffer every year in a seasonal way is a direct descendant from the 1918 flu that caused a very serious pandemic that was the most similar circumstance to what we're facing right now. The high probability is we're going to see the same thing with coronavirus. This is a very adaptable virus, as we've learned, unfortunately, the hard way. And it is, we're in a situation where, though we have a vaccine, you know, early on, enough people chose not to take it. And frankly, our uh, hyper-capitalist corporatist system kept it from a lot of people abroad in a way that has allowed uh, this virus to continue to move. And, and at this point, right, we know that the vaccine is extremely effective at preventing hospitalization and death to COVID-19, but people who are vaccinated can continue to transmit, which means that we're in a situation now where the virus can continue to move even within vaccinated people. All of these spell the likely outcome where we don't eradicate COVID we learn to live with COVID. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to continue to be uh, a pandemic as it is right now, where we have these massive waves that, that kill thousands of people a day. But it does mean that it's highly likely to you know, kill tens of thousands of people every year and that we're going to continue to have to protect ourselves from it. And the choices we make around it, I think, are going to continue to shape our daily lives, particularly seasonally, maybe not in the same way that it does right now, but in ways that are going to force us to think a bit about this virus as we contend with our daily lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's scary that we're going to live with this, that, that we're potentially going to live with this for, you know, the foreseeable future, whether it's at this level or it's something more like, you know, the flu where you go and get, mm -hmm. you go and get shot. So I keep making the point to a lot of these anti-vaxxers and people like that, that actually what you're doing is you're making the pharmaceutical companies very, very happy because they would love to have to do another vaccine and they would love it even more if it became endemic and then they got to uh, uh, search for treatments rather than a cure because a vaccine cures it and then you don't have it anymore and they can't make any more money. But this way, you know, you keep having new vaccines or you get to a point where you need to have a, a treatment for it um, because it's endemic and that just pumps up their profits. Is that pretty much accurate or? Well, the way that I think about it is that we have to differentiate between the science of vaccines and mm -hmm. the corporatist incentives of pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, the science that we base the vaccines on, whether it's the basic science around leveraging mRNA to create an immune response inside the body that is very effective at protecting against symptomatic illness, or it's the broader epidemiologic science around testing these vaccines 
that science is objective and, and it's high quality. Unfortunately, the corporations who we've entrusted to manufacture these vaccines have an incentive to make money off the vaccines, and they're going to follow that incentive to the end. And, and we saw it come up around the decision around boosters. Now, there's decent science to demonstrate that the efficacy of the uh, vaccines may wane with time, particularly in older individuals, against uh, infection, not necessarily against hospitalization uh, and or death. But uh, against infection. And, you know, there, there's evidence to, at, at least we think, that demonstrates that the risk of infection goes down with the third vaccine. That being said, there's also evidence to show that this virus is wholly adaptable. And the longer billions of people go without having it, the more likely it is that we are offering this virus the space to be able to evolve and to uh, potentially threaten humanity in whole new ways. And so I, I think that the decision to offer, you know, boosters in high income countries in the global north, rather than focus on offering first and second doses in low income countries in the global south has a lot to do with those incentives. And, you know, it's one thing to uh, oppose pharmaceutical companies greed, which is something I do uh, all day, every day. But it's another entirely to oppose the vaccine because of that, because, you know, the vaccine itself is safe, effective, and frankly, was funded from start to finish by government, right? Uh, this mm -hmm. is the ideal of a progressive society where we have a problem, government invests in the solution, and it offers that solution free of charge to everybody, right? I mean, this is kind of the healthcare system we want. And at the same time, to oppose the corporations in the way that they behaved around making sure that they can sell more vaccines at a higher rate in spaces like ours. And so, yes, it is a complex situation. And I think the point that you made about trying to, to finish this thing off once and for all, that is the goal that we have. And by not taking the vaccine, all we are doing is prolonging this pandemic and increasing the need for more and more different tools in the arsenal against that. And that increases the opportunity for corporations to put their profits forward. So, you know, it is complex. And my argument to folks is similar to yours. Get the vaccine now, protect yourself, protect your family. Let's end this pandemic and get to a point where we don't have to worry about that future. Yeah. Yeah, so part of the issue here is, in fact, the spread of mis- and disinformation. And I'm, I'm sure you know that, that the mathematics of that kind of spread and the mathematics of a virus spread are identical. That's right. So I'm curious what you think about that analogy and if there's anything in viral epidemiology that can help us combat this um, informational epidemiology that we're having. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason we call it going viral right, is because it follows the same sort of exponential curve as viral spread, right, where you have each individual spreading to multiple other individuals over time, creating sort of explosive growth. And the most important thing we can do in epidemiology in public health is to prevent the first one. And, uh, and that's why vaccination is so important when it comes to the virus. But that's also why good information is so important, because you're, you're protecting someone, not just from becoming a victim of mis and disinformation, but also becoming a perpetrator of mis and disinformation. And that's why it's so critical. You know, I, I hear a lot of um, a lot of folks these days sort of moving information in ways that they don't fully appreciate the damage that's done through it. And, you know, in a moment when there are so many reasons not to trust the government or corporations, I think we have to be even better consumers of information. And I think what we have to remember is that we can't just oppose all forms of expertise or, you know, knowledge authority. But what we have to do is become really good at sussing out what we can trust and, and what we can't. And so I worry sometimes when colleagues of ours uh, on the left will say, well, we can't trust them 
because there's a corporate agenda behind what they're saying. Because sometimes I think that that plays into, you know, a lot of the arguments that are perpetuating this thing and ultimately, you know, feed into um, a lot of the systems that, you know, keep our social media companies from having to be held accountable from the very dangerous information that's spread on their platforms. And who does this more than folks on the right who want us not to believe anything. And so to me, it always comes back to the science. Science, the beauty of it is it's deeply transparent. You, know, you can look at the case records of every single individual who participated in uh, one of these studies. I mean, they're published, right? You can, you can look at tables, who uh, experienced what in the context of these trials. And so rather than resharing a chain post on Facebook or retweeting a story that's shared by you know, your cousin's best friend's former dog's owner's girlfriend, right? Um, right? Maybe actually go and take a look at those studies. And if you don't know what you're looking at, then do the reading to learn what it is you're looking at to be able to suss it out for yourself. But transparency is the key here. And the thing about data is it's very different than anecdata, right? Anecdotes are not data. A lot of people telling you some things about what they experienced is not the same thing as data. There's a reason that we do epidemiologic science is because it helps us to suss out the real story from all of these anecdotes. And, And so I'd encourage people to be really good consumers information because your ability to consume information is both your ability to protect yourself from misinformation and disinformation, but also protect you from being a perpetrator of misinformation and disinformation without knowing it. And, and we have to be in this moment, particularly right now, you know, as we think about, uh, about taking on a lot of the powers that have misused their power, whether those are corporations or you know the security state that pushed us into war and, and hid the information, the key is to be really good consumers of information so that we can tell truth from falsehood and that our critique and our efforts to make the world a better place are actually founded in fact, rather than founded in uh, stories that, that may be backed by agendas that we don't agree with. Sure, sure. Following up on that, you know, we have to be good consumers of information. We have to demonstrate that we're good consumers of information. So for example, um, you're going to be talking at, at a summit that we're organizing on October 2nd, Progressive Solidarity Summit. Do you know yet? Do we have enough information now to decide whether or not that ought to be partially in person and partially virtual as it's designed, or if we need to go fully virtual? Well, I think it really depends on where cases go. I will say that, you know, mm-hmm. thankfully, while cases are high and they're trending upward, they're not as high as they are in, in a number of other states. The key thing is that people who come ought to be vaccinated. That really is right. the most important thing. And so, you know, requiring people to be vaccinated to be in person. Uh, and then asking them to wear masks, I think is the right way forward. And for folks you know, who are not yet vaccinated, please do get your vaccination. And if not, just make sure that you understand that your choice not to get vaccinated doesn't just affect you yourself, it affects all of us. And you know, at core, our progressive ideals and our values are founded in the collective ideal, and the idea that you know, we do live in a society and what we do does affect other people and that we have to operate as such. And so getting yourself vaccinated is a public good and it's critical. And you know, if you're not yet vaccinated, protecting other people from what you may be harboring or passing on is also a public good. And so I think it makes great sense to, to restrict uh, access to the in-person event to, to folks who are vaccinated, uh, make sure that people are wearing masks. And uh, if you do that, I think um, you can keep it pretty safe. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to talk on uh, going to a politics a little bit. Uh, how do you think the Democratic Party is going to do in the midterms? And what do you think uh, they need to do to turn around what I see as, as looking pretty bad? Well, there are a couple of things. Number one, party outcomes are affected by A, the, the, the redistricting process. And if you look at where seats are moving from and, and where they're moving to, unfortunately, they're moving from states that are heavily Democratic to states where those seats are likely to be apportioned by a Republican state legislature, meaning they're likely to be gerrymandered Republican. So, you know, you think about a net loss from Michigan where we have a now an independent bipartisan redistricting process to Texas, where you have a heavily Republican state legislature because of gerrymandering, 
um, that's a net loss of a seat. So already we're working from a structural disadvantage. Now, so much of our ability to win, I think, is going to be based in how people feel about their current circumstances. And the resurgence of Delta, I think, has really destabilized a lot of the joy and optimism that we had in May and June. And so, you know, where we are, even in the month or two leading up to the election, could say a lot about where we go from here. I do think that there are some structural challenges around the economy right now that are working themselves out. But again, you know, it unfortunately goes back to the pandemic. You know, you look at this, the conversation that we've been having about spending and about the potential for inflation. And a lot of that is, you know, kinks of an economy waking back up, right? If you have a lot of demand chasing very little supply, what tends to happen is the value of the dollars chasing that supply goes down and that's what causes inflation. Now, that is not quite the situation that we were in because so much of the supply was artificially constrained because of the pandemic economy. But then as we bump along, right, and we have surge after surge where you know, production starts to, to go up and then it has to go back down and then it goes back up, these bumps in the road don't help our ability to sort of move past what could be a, a situation where inflation starts to tick up. I personally believe that a lot of what we're seeing is just a function of this moment, but it is tenuous as we move forward. And then the last point here is that can we actually solve problems in this country? We're watching a two-pronged approach around the bipartisan infrastructure deal and then the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package. And if they both move forward, it will have done a lot to take on some of the biggest problems uh, in our country. Is it enough? No, not nearly enough. But you know, you have real substantial climate legislation in that $3.5 trillion package. You have real substantial uh, efforts to improve access to basic things like vision and dental coverage in Medicare and potentially prescription drug reform. These are big deals. And I think our ability to get them passed will say a lot about what we've done over the past two years. The unfortunate thing here, though, is you know every time Republicans are in power, they make a mess. And every time Democrats are in power, they have to clean it up. And it's hard, right? Because a lot of folks will look and they'll make a momentary judgment of where we are. But you know Republicans take power after everything's been cleaned up. And they haven't yet made a huge mess. And people look at that and be like, okay, things are moving. And then when Democrats are in power, we're cleaning up the mess that they actively left behind. And because there's still a little bit of the mess left, folks will look at that and say, well, I don't know if I like the place we're in right now. But uh, what we have to be doing is showing how we clean up messes. And you know, I, I think there's a lot more drastic effort that's needed. But you know, you, you, <laughs> we go to the races with the horse we have. And the Biden administration, to their credit, uh, has done some, some really good things. I wish they'd do more but they have to show their work. And I think they have to point to their efforts and hopefully they can get things done with enough time for folks to see those efforts actually accrue to the benefits in their real lives. That makes a lot of sense. Let me, let me ask you a little bit closer to home. There's, what do you think MDP leadership should do differently to protect members from rogue or toxic people in general, and particularly people that are attacking people of color, as we've seen recently? What do you think should be done differently? Well, I mean, I just think that we don't have place in our party for people who don't empower the diversity and the multiplicity of our communities. And uh, unfortunately, we haven't paid enough attention because we've always assumed that members of our coalition come to our coalition in good faith. And I just think that we have to have a, a far more, a far broader conversation about what it means to be an ally to people of color and to folks who represent all of the diversity of our state and our party. But then B, I think, you know, when a, a pattern of action is demonstrated, I think we have a real responsibility to act and to act quickly. You know, unfortunately, politics itself by nature lends to a certain level of toxicity at times. And I, 
I think we're all better off when we try and contain that and to call it what it is. And so, you know, it's sad to say, but there is active racism and, and active sexism and active uh, xenophobia and active homophobia and active anti-poor animus, unfortunately, in our country, in our state, and, and sometimes in our party. But I think that we have to call it out and we have to move forward when we see it. Yeah, there was a word I used for, uh, for anti-poor is I use wealthism mm. as, as, as equivalent to, to racism or sexism. Because mm. that's what you're really seeing there. I think we have time for one more question. When you ran for governor, I asked you what was the cause of poverty at one of your events. I'm not sure if you remember that or not. And you gave a, a carefully worded answer that I'm pretty sure boils down to wealth and income inequality. Number one, is that an accurate characterization? And number two, what causes wealth and income inequality? Yeah, I think you're right to ask if that's an accurate characterization, because at some point those are instrumental. In the end, I, I do think that there is a implicit greed that operates often in our society that our society not only takes for granted, but, but sometimes celebrates, right? I mean, you got the classic Gordon Gecko, greed is good. And that greed creates a set of structures and a set of systems that doesn't just maintain a level of income and wealth inequality, but it actually accelerates it. And I think often, you know, I think there's a difference between talking about structural greed versus talking about people being greedy. Because I think sometimes you look at that and be like, oh, those people aren't greedy, right? They're just, you know, they've been privileged and they're working to cement their privilege. But when you look at the sum total consequence of that and the mm -hmm. poverty that it leaves behind, the consequences are dire and the moral characteristics of that has to be discussed and called out. And so I do think that as we think about moving forward, We've got to be really good just as we are uprooting structural racism to recognize that the, you know, the fellow traveler of structural racism is, is structural greed. And, sure. uh, and we, have to be, we have to be willing to call it out and to take it on as it shapes the society around us. I mean, and it shows itself in ways, you know, everything from the way that we continue to fund education, K through 12 education or higher education, to the way that we zone communities, to the way that you know, the culture of the way that, you know, systems of power interact tend to actively implicitly discriminate against people who haven't had the same experiences or uh, access to education. All of these things point to the cementing and acceleration uh, of a certain level of income and wealth inequality that I, I just think we have, we have a responsibility to take on. The last thing I'll say is that, you know, we have a system of politics that's been absolutely corrupted by a failing firewall between corporatism and our democracy. And so long as the, the richest, most powerful entities in our society, which are corporations, continue to be able to legally influence the outcomes of elections, we're going to continue to see this sort of accelerating wealth and income inequality. And so here again is the way that this structural greed uh, shows itself. And I think we have a responsibility to call it out, to articulate its moral dimensions and to reverse it. Yeah. I would just point out uh, racism, uh, you know, the idea of whiteness was invented as a weapon of the class war back in the, in the 1600s, when mm -hmm. white slavers introduced the idea so that they could drive a wedge between black slaves and indentured white servants, so they wouldn't cooperate with each other. Um, right. so it's kind of funny to me that people go around and talk about how proud they are that they're white. And it's essentially the same thing as saying, as saying the N-word, but about white people. Mm -hmm. But they're accepting that. They're saying, you know, I'm going to accept that label that these uh, wealthy people put on my ancestors, you know, 400 years ago. And I'm going to be proud of that and that I'm that I'm subservient to, 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 to these uh, wealthiest people, like I was just saying. 
Well, the piece I would push on there is to say that in so many ways, you're right. The label of whiteness has been leveraged to justify a division of people who have been victims of a system of poverty. At the same time, though, whiteness has often operated to allow people access to higher classes should they meet or access a particular set of finishing schools. Whereas for Black folks and other people of color, they have been systematically barred up until very recently. And so I would say that, you know, I hear you in the point that you're making. I'd also say, though, that the nature of the N-word and the way that it's been used to systematically exploit and exclude people does make it a little bit different. But I appreciate the broader point you're making about how, you know, whiteness has been used divisively and to keep people down as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I absolutely absolutely agree with everything that you said there. Uh, Do we have some more time or you got to go? I've got to jump on another call, unfortunately. Forgive okay. me. No problem. No problem. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I think we covered some good ground and I uh, hope we'll be able to have you back again and maybe have a longer conversation so we can get into some more details about some of this stuff and down some paths, et cetera. Well, I'd, uh, I'd appreciate that, Liano. Always appreciate your efforts uh, on behalf of foreign working people and your efforts on behalf of a more just Michigan and uh, grateful for the time today. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. See you soon. Thanks for listening. You can find State of the Revolution on your favorite podcast platform or on the Michigan Progressive website, michiganprogressive.com. If you're listening on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. And if you like the work we're doing, consider making a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash michiganprogressive. 